Today's guest is a zero to one entrepreneur building a VC-backed startup for 13 years. In 2020, he pivoted and by 2022 had decided that buying a small business would be his next adventure. Tim Erickson bought a printer rental business a few months ago, and he's bringing to bear his hard-won lessons from a startup to his newly acquired small business. My favorite point that he makes here is how being funded by VC, gunning toward unicorn status, trained him to think big, to move fast, to be aggressive. Now, a lot of that attitude is what many of us, and indeed the culture more broadly, has soured on when it comes to the culture of tech. And yet, there is something to it. Tim has big plans for his acquisition, namely doubling it in three years. Also listen for the theme of remote operations. This is old hat for Tim, whose startup had 35 locations at its peak. He believes that running an equipment rental business remotely from his home in Puerto Rico is eminently doable. And again, maybe we would all be similarly comfortable with that if we thought a little bigger. Now, I'm not saying run out and buy a business a plane right away, but Tim did it. Chris Munn did it, episode 73. Paul Quirk did it, episode 124. Private equity funds do it almost by default. So food for thought. Okay, please enjoy this conversation with startup founder turned SMB acquirer, Tim Erickson. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher, first with a traditional search fund, the second time around he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no-risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers. They've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out oberly-risk.com, O-B-E-R-L-E hyphen risk.com. Link in the show notes. Tim Erickson, welcome to Acquiring Minds. Thank you. Happy to be here, Well, Tim, you are a zero to one entrepreneur who spent over a decade building a VC-funded startup that you started from scratch. And today, you have come over to the dark side, or maybe I should say <laughs> the, the light side, the bright side, with the recent acquisition of a small business. Uh, a yep. small business that I myself had seen on Biz Buy Sell, <laughs> asked for the SIM, uh, but was told was already under LOI, and now I know by whom. <laughs> so let's get into it, Tim. As always, let's start with some background on you, please. Absolutely. So uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm a longtime uh, listener. Um, but yeah, I started my VC back company called Zagster uh, back in 2007, coming out of undergrad in, in Philadelphia. Uh, we were the one of the first companies to bring bicycle sharing uh, to the US market uh, way ahead of our time. <laughs> uh, but uh, ended up uh, spending a few years in, in Philadelphia trying to get it off the ground, live the, the zero to one and 
three years of you know, making no money, eating ramen, uh, and trying to, to get something that, that I believed in off the ground. Uh, we ended up uh, uh, moving up to Boston to go through the Techstars program, uh, which is really, if I look back, the uh, pivotal point in the in the business where it started to to accelerate, and ultimately went on to raise over forty million dollars in venture capital. Uh, we grew the company to hundreds of employees with two hundred and fifty bike share programs in thirty five states around the U.S. And then ultimately sold the business to one of the e-scooter companies who wanted to use our uh, nationwide network of uh, operations team and our city and university contracts to accelerate their entry into the market. So went through the the full life cycle of a VC-backed company, all the good things and the, and the bad things, and uh, came out the other side and uh, started to look at what to do next. And you, so you said you started in 2007, that business, and exited in what year was it? Uh, 2020. So a 13-year run. Good for you. Tim. 13 years. Yeah. I, I had, I had a hair a before this. <laughs> <laughs> quite a run. Okay. Um, 2020 exit. And if I may, was the exit, you know, of stratospheric Silicon Valley exits? Get, rank <laughs> it for us. I know you don't want to give us a number, but give us a sense of what it did to your life uh, post-acquisition. Uh, it wasn't a huge uh, windfall for for me personally. I, I still have uh, stock in the the company that uh, that acquired uh, me, but it's uh, private, still privately held. So uh, I hope one day that uh, that'll be worth something. But you know, ultimately, uh, investors were uh, pretty happy with the with the outcome, and uh, you know, I, we were able to help the the company that acquired us, a company called Super Pedestrian, uh, accelerate and uh, go into. Uh, cities like Paris and London and uh, major cities around the world with with our operations team. Fantastic. And and so was Zagster uh, consumer facing? I mean, might people in the audience have have used your bicycles and know the brand? Yeah. So we were a B two B two C brand. Uh, mm -hmm. So we would sell to cities and universities, corporate campuses around the country. So we did everything from uh, big universities like Yale, Princeton, Duke, and the Ohio State. Uh, to smaller, mid-sized cities like in Albuquerque or Rochester, New York. And then we did a, a ton of corporate campuses like General Motors campus uh, uh, outside of Detroit. So uh, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a good chance that you may have uh, seen our bikes uh, or used them uh, around the country. Mm -hmm. Oh, really cool. Well, that's not the last we'll hear about Zagster. I'll be, I'll be <laughs> um, referencing that story a lot as we go here. Um, okay, so... You, we're up to 2020 now. You exited in COVID. What, did COVID play a role in that timing, or would it have would it have happened anyway? So the the market had shifted. Uh, you know, we were growing 300 percent year over year, having an amazing run for for many years uh, uh, leading up to to 2019 and 2020. Uh, those years, the the scooter programs came in. The if you remember, the Chinese dockless bike share programs came in and. Uh, those companies had raised literally over a billion dollars. Uh, none of them are still in existence today. They all blew through all that money and uh, never really made it anywhere. Uh, and so we were coming off of uh, you know two major industry shifts. And so uh, our investors were B2B SaaS investors and our business model was B2B and uh, recurring revenue uh, until the market changed. And so in 2019, uh, we started to uh, to look to uh, get acquired uh, and use our operations team as the 
uh, as a thesis for selling to many of the companies that didn't have any uh, operational uh, backing. Yeah. Well, w- when you talk about those those market entrants or, or kind of disruption to the market, the scooters and the dockless bikes, obviously we all know, or anybody who is paying attention, scooters, I mean, what a, what a remarkable story that was. I mean, just absolute white hot hype uh, and kind of trendiness and then just utter collapse. I don't think it's since Groupon that I that I saw something go up so quickly and, and back down so quickly on the other side. Uh, you still see some scooters around, but not many, <laughs> not many at all. And then the dockless bikes. I'm not even I'm not even sure I I, I I was aware of that trend. Give us 30 seconds on on both of those. Just kind of as somebody who is playing in the space, how how you how you observe those trends. Yeah, so historically in the U.S., uh, bike sharing programs were really considered more of a uh, public transit uh, uh, type application. So cities and universities and corporate campuses would fund these programs so that there was additional uh, transportation options uh, for uh, their constituents. And so, you know, that was the market that we were playing in. And we had, you know, really great long term contracts and recurring revenue there. Uh, And then a handful of companies came out of China. Uh, who sort of flipped the model on its head and said, let's just put the cheapest bicycles out there as possible. Uh, we will not charge the cities. We'll not even work with the cities. We're just going to do it without any permits. Uh, and those companies ended up going Uber style. Yep. <laughs> uh, those companies uh, went on to show on paper stratospheric growth, uh, which you know now that we've all seen the sort of up and down, realized that it wasn't actually true. Uh, and so they tried to come to the US and sort of flip the model uh, go after our customers and say, hey, you've been paying for this bike share program. Now we're going to give it to you for free. Uh, but then they launched in places like Dallas, where they put like literally tens of thousands of bikes that were just piling up on the street corners uh, because they didn't lock to anything. There was no coordination with the city. Uh, and so ultimately, all of those programs uh, uh, went away. And you could actually go around the world. You could see, you still see a lot of those bikes. Saw one here in, in Puerto Rico where I live uh, the other day riding down the street. I've seen it in, you know, Asia and the Middle East, uh, those bikes are just brought around, around the world, uh, still being utilized without their technology today. <laughs> and so do any um, dockless bike programs still exist? I mean, I'm sure there's got to be a handful around, but are, are they effect- is it effectively a defunct model altogether? Because the scooters still exist just in a shadow of its former self. Yeah, the, I'm not aware of any, uh, at least in the U.S., any... Uh, there are no individual uh, bike share companies that are that are dockless still. Uh, mm-hmm. Many of the scooter companies got their start in dockless and then moved to scooters. Uh, mm. And so some of them still operate some of those programs. But the traditional docked based bike share programs that you see in like New York and Boston, uh, you know, are all still thriving. But because yeah. they follow the model that we followed, which was this is a public transit, public good. Uh, and, you know, they work lot with the with the city with long-term contracts really interesting well um again tim congratulations on on being so early in a in a in a space having that um foresight and that vision and sticking with it for 13 years it's 2020 you've now exited that business and how do you get the idea of buying a small business tell us about that evolution yeah, so it honestly, uh, it, it took a little bit to to, to get there and, and took to 2022 to to really solidify that that vision. But um, yeah, I, I've literally worked every single day since I was 13, uh, worked all through college uh, while going to school full time, 
and then immediately coming out of undergrad, founded Zagster. So I've literally worked every single day uh, uh, from uh, for the last you know 20, 30 years. Uh, and so originally moved to Puerto Rico uh, from Boston after we um, the, the acquisition was going through. Uh, really wanted to get out of the Boston winters, spent a little bit of time down here. And then it turned into, well, if you're going to go for a few months, let's go for a year. And you know, three and a half years later, I'm, I'm, I'm still here in, in Puerto Rico and loving it. Um, but I, 2020, 2021, I, uh, spent a little bit of time trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. I worked, uh, and did a couple of consulting opportunities and ultimately, uh, I did a, uh, consulting gig with a friend of mine, uh, who had, uh, come from the VC space, uh, worked as a VP of product at a friend's company. And then ultimately he went on to buy one of those van rental companies, uh, those like 13, 14 person passenger van companies. Uh, where you can't get it from Hertz or Enterprise. Uh, I did a little bit of work with them and I was fascinated by the concept. He ended up buying a whole bunch of them and rolling them into to the platform. Uh, and he was the one who ultimately gave uh, me the buy, then build book and uh, started my process to uh, look for a company on my own. And w so it sounds like if he gave you buy, then build the, the Bible in this space or one of the two or three Bibles, it sounds like he also kind of came via learning about search and read the read the books and and so on well you'll have to introduce me tim he sounds like a, a great story <laughs> as well <laughs> yes uh, definitely. great so so you see his success you're fascinated by what he's doing by the business itself you read buy then build and so is this is this the uh proverbial light bulb moment and you're off you're 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 dead set i'm doing this or was there more evolution to come as to you know actually making the decision to proceed yeah, so that was early 2022 when I read the the book around springtime and ended up spending the entire summer uh, literally reading every other book I could find. I listened to every single one of your your podcasts, actually, uh, <laughs> uh, while doing some hiking. I, I've literally uh, uh, listened to every single one. And wow. uh, by the end of thank the you. summer, I uh, came back. Absolutely. <laughs> I came back. Thank you. I uh, came back to Puerto Rico and uh, decided September 1st to uh, start full-time to look for a business. I went through the acquisition lab, uh, which I was really looking for a community of other searchers who uh, were going through the, the same thing I was to, to have uh, uh, some, some comrades in that. Uh, I mm -hmm. had that in the, the venture capital space and, and found it you know, hugely valuable. So I wanted to find something similar. I went through the acquisition lab to help accelerate the beginning of my search. It's a September cohort coming out in, in October and, and started looking for, for a business full time. Let, let's um, linger on the value of community for a minute. Um, listeners will know that the Acquisition Lab is a sponsor. I also went through the lab, uh, friends with Chelsea and, and the gang over there. Um, so uh, full, full disclosure there, but the value of community is something that comes up um, again and again, actually, although I, I haven't um, spent too much time talking about it. So let's do that. I, I actually, going back to Zagster, when you'd mentioned Techstars and that, I, I think you mentioned it, or maybe it was on our pre-call, you said that Zagster really finally kind of got product market fit or started to accelerate, started to really take shape as a business at, during and after Techstars. Something happened at Techstars, correct? That was the catalyst? Yeah. So Techstars is a three-month accelerator program for uh, companies that are on the venture capital um, uh, path. And what they really do is help companies that are already sort of figured out their product, uh, figure out some early customers, and they help them 
help us um, uh, really accelerate and move faster, get more customers, and then go down the path of uh, uh, fundraising from from venture capitalists. So I, I went through that program in uh, uh, the winter of 2012 with with Zagster, and you could literally pinpoint that um, that time frame as the the beginning of our massive growth, our ability to actually raise uh, venture capital to to fund the the type of business that I that I wanted to build. Uh, and so when I started looking to, to buy a business myself, uh, was looking for a similar community uh, of people that were going through this. Yeah. So, so you were in your own mind kind of referencing your tech stars experience uh, and, and looking for some sort of parallel in this space. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and then, so did you find, this is, uh, <laughs> this is going to be a bit of a softball for my sponsor, but did you find <laughs> that the value of the, of your comrades and of that community, uh, gave you what you wanted? I mean, you know, we can't overdo the parallels here. Techstars is very different it's in a different space than, than the acquisition lab in the acquisition space. But, um, talk about what it was like actually having comrades as you went through this. Yeah, and to be clear, the, the acquisition lab does not sponsor me, so I'm, I'm speaking freely on, on my end. But, <laughs> Thank you. Um, Good clarification. You know, I was, was very happy that I that I went through the the, the program. I mean, I, I think the the month long cohort is really helpful to uh, accelerate your search, uh, and it probably cut what would have taken me three months. Uh, I got done in 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 four weeks, which you know, as you're if you're doing a full time search, is actually extremely valuable to you. Uh, but I, I think where the real value comes in after that was the the Slack groups and the uh, monthly uh, bi-monthly uh, calls where they go through uh, deal reviews and then uh, the weekly office meetings as I was going through my search and then I was going through diligence on the, the company that I ultimately bought. Uh, just having those resources was just so, so valuable for, for, for me. Uh, and, you know, I now regularly give back in in the slack groups and and others that are uh, earlier in their journey so uh mm -hmm. it's the same sort of mindset that the tech stars have of, of giving first uh and, mm -hmm. you know so many people help me and i, I want to make sure that I, I help others as well listeners of acquiring minds know that for almost any business you acquire its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. Fantastic. Thank you, Tim. And yes, to be clear, I, I found you completely independent of, of the lab. So this is, <laughs> yes. this is a, totally just between Will and Tim talking here. Um, all right. Okay. So you're in the lab. You've consumed a ton of, ton of information on our pre-call. You called it your summer of learning. Uh, you really <laughs> just consumed as much as you could, hit the books as hard as you could. Tell us about the search itself. What, do, what are you doing? 
Yeah, so I ended up doing a pretty broad search. I initially looked at everything in the 750K to 2 million EBITDA or SDE range uh, anywhere in the US that was SBA qualified. Uh, and so because I was doing this full time, I, I really spent the first uh, four weeks getting out of the acquisition lab, uh, building up my, my pipeline. I contacted literally every single broker on the IBBA list. I um, signed up for every mailing list and uh, even built a couple little tools just, just for me to do some scraping and others to get all of the, uh, all the, uh, the uh, postings uh, all in one place. So, um, you know, I, uh, pretty efficient on that. I, I even ended up using HubSpot to track my search. I've got a YouTube video uh, that I walk uh, searchers through how to, how to set up HubSpot for free to uh, better manage your your search. So happy to, oh. to link the, to that in the show notes if that's awesome. helpful. Yes. Yes, please. Uh, and so, yeah, it started just full time. I would look at, I don't know, probably close to five, 600 uh, deals a week. And, you know, you end up digging into only one, two or three of them a week and sort of ending the week with uh, uh, most of them not not being a fit for for various reasons. But uh, ended up finding a, a handful of ones that I that I really liked and gave two LOIs and then ultimately landed on the business that I bought. Tim, this, I mean, so you really blanketed the US with, you know, your outreach to brokers. So it sounds like you were doing strictly brokered, but you were, but you were doing very wide <laughs> broker outreach. And you're in Puerto Rico. So first of all, ex explain that. What if you had found a business in Washington State? You ultimately found a business in Maryland by me. Um, but um, but anyway, both of those are playing right away. So how are you thinking about that? Yeah, so I was um, looking for businesses that I could ultimately move towards a, um, a work from home or work remote model. Uh, and so, you know, at Zagster, we had literally hundreds of people working for us in 35 states. So it's very comfortable with, you know, one travel. <laughs> I spend like two weeks of every month on, on the road while I was running Zagster. Uh, but two, most importantly, it's the, you know, tech and processes to be able to run a company where people are not physically in the same office every day. So uh, I was looking for, for companies that could fit that. And I was willing to move to uh, whatever city that, uh, that I found it in for, you know, six months, nine months, whatever it took to ultimately uh, move the company to a, a remote first model. So uh, that, that's what I was looking for. And, you know, the business that I, that I found operates around the, the country, happened to be headquartered in, in Maryland. But uh, since COVID, all of the admin staff uh, work from, from home. So it was ended up being a, a perfect fit for me. Mm -hmm. And Tim, when you say, uh, well, I'm going to want to spend quite a bit of time on, you know, your comfort with having so many remote employees, because um, having employees at all is daunting to a lot of people <laughs> listening, let alone remote ones. Uh, and you're, and as you said, you're very comfortable with it. So we'll get into that. Um, but first, when you say you were looking for a business that, that was either already remote or could be taken remote, what, it, what does that um, leave? What is that? Uh, what kind of businesses does that exclude? Because that doesn't, I mean, you're, you're perfectly happy to do a very physical business as long as there can be remote managers in place to 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 manage the the various satellites around the country. So so what kind of business could not be ultimately done with Tim manage, you know running the whole thing from Puerto Rico? Yeah, I think any, like manufacturing which was not really something that interests me. I, I would look at manufacturing companies um, because I was curious, but I I really just never got excited about it and I think it's mainly because I think my skill set 
um, is really in the the sales and marketing and go to market strategy versus the uh, um, you know really digging in and worrying about the nuts and bolts on the operations side. I, I usually work with a with a partner who uh, has that mindset. When I uh, even at Zagster, I I had that. Uh, so you know, I think it, it excluded those types of stuff. But honestly, I, I think most companies that don't have a physical storefront uh, and, you know, aren't manufacturing something in a, in a facility could ultimately be uh, run remotely. And I, I think, you know, as you, we, uh, COVID showed that most of these companies can be run remotely. Uh, yep. And so I think that the timing for me being in Puerto Rico made a lot of sense. I, I also looked in Puerto Rico uh, and still looking for, for opportunities in Puerto Rico, but there just isn't the broker network in Puerto Rico that there is in the US. Um, mm-hmm. And so I I think maybe long term, I could find a really great opportunity here, but it's definitely old school, you know, proprietary search and uh, spending a lot of time uh, uh, meeting with people. So building up sort of a longer term pipeline. So a quote unquote blue collar services business where you have people in the field, a landscaping business or an HVAC business, those do qualify because ultimately those people are not in the office anyway. They're out in the field. And so you could, even if a business like that has kind of a, a headquarters that where people are checking in, the crews are checking in every morning, you or the, or the operator manager is there, something like that you envisioned could be uh, evolved into a, a remote business, remotely operated business. Absolutely. I actually looked at a um, a landscaping business in Maryland. I'm not sure why I got a whole bunch of deal flow in Maryland, but I, I did. And <laughs> uh, ultimately, I, I didn't like that particular business because of the dynamics that they had with their uh, customers and how the, the owner was really going to like all the HOA meetings. And so I felt that it was very difficult to um, to replace him being remote. I, I think it's a great business. And if yeah, I was in Maryland, I probably would have bought it. But uh, it was just one where I felt that particular landscaping company would have been difficult to to run remotely. But, you know, if I had gotten into the landscaping space, I probably would have looked at uh, buying landscaping companies up and down the East Coast. Uh, and so I'd, I'd have to make sure that those could run remotely um, or at least have a, you know, operations manager in place in each market checking in with me. Well, I'm so eager to hear uh, again about your comfort with this, Tim. And but just a quick thought. I mean, this just feels to me like the what? What is the expression where we um, set, we're self-limiting? Because I, for example, I'm like I I could never like if, when and if I buy a business, it's you know I'm going to be there. I'm going to be in there. I frankly don't have the confidence to buy a business even at, you know two hours away, let alone up and down the East Coast when I'm in Puerto Rico, um, because you know I just uh, think that you know I'll I'll need to be there and and I and I do think that that's a best practice but I'm looking at you who has so much comfort um, with a model like that and it's you know it's largely thanks to 13 13 years of experience running a business like that but the point my point is that like you know maybe I should think bigger and maybe I should just you know think like Tim already thinks and because it is possible and I'm kind of just many of us are just kind of self limiting that that we. We say, oh, no, we, we first have to maybe one day I'll get there. But first, I have to be physically in the business that I buy and operate it that way in person, um, uh, at least in the early years. I don't know. Any response to that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is why my background in uh, running a VC back company was so valuable to the space and, and why I'm seeing others uh, with that similar background uh, starting to, to come into the, to the ETA space. 
you know, I, I came out of undergrad. I, I was founding my last company. I had zero, you know, business operating experience uh, uh, prior to that. And, you know, the the good and the bad of the VC model is that it forces you to think really big. Uh, it forces mm-hmm. you to to move really quickly and do things that are uncomfortable. And, you know, I probably wouldn't have done if uh, if we didn't have the pressure to to grow big and grow fast. Uh, and so you're forced to to learn that stuff. And now it became second nature to me. I mean, I never thought of it as running a remote company. Um, and, you know, we did have a headquarters in in Boston, but, you know, most of our employees were were not at headquarters. They were they were out of the field. So, um, you know, I just over time learned learned to do that. And that's the the lens that I took when I when I did my search and I was looking to, you know, find an entry point into the space. But I was going to buy I plan to buy multiple companies um, uh, probably now in the equipment rental space, cause that's where I ended up. Uh, and you know, the likelihood of them being in a location other than Maryland is pretty high. And so I knew from the beginning that I needed to, to find a way to be able to, uh, uh, be able to essentially work remotely and run it, uh, not, not physically on location. Yeah, man. I love that, Tim, just the, the, the bigger vision and, and how the kind of the VC land was, was training for, for that. That's great. We can, we can all learn from that. Okay. Let's, so you, you, uh, in ca- so, okay. To tell us about the, the discovery of short-term copier. Yeah. I, uh, when everybody tells you, whenever, when you're searching the general, uh, feedback that you get from people who have searched and, and successfully acquired a business is that you need to go out and you need to talk to brokers and you need to create this, uh, a search and, you know, it, sort of look at biz by sell, but it, ignore it. You'll probably find it somewhere else. Uh, you know, ultimately I, I found lots of other companies and companies I dug into a pass for other reasons in the broker network, uh, direct broker outreach. But, uh, ultimately I was I always still looked at, at biz by sell. And, and one day I saw this, uh, copier company pop up and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> How is there still mm-hmm. a copier company out there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'll be honest, I was pretty skeptical, uh, at first, but I requested the the sim like I usually do in anything that sort of catches my my eye. I just want to move quick, see the sim, see if it's interesting, and then make a decision to dig in or not. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a, actually there was no sim available, uh, so they didn't put together a sim for this business. They they basically just had the uh, the listing on on biz by sell. So I ended up talking with the the broker. We had a good call, and uh, after I got off the phone with them, I started seeing a lot of the similarities to to Zagster. Um, this company, uh, short-term copier, they rent copiers, uh, and printers on a short-term basis for events, uh, and, uh, legal war rooms around the country. So they do the Super Bowl every year. They do, they work with all the major law firms when they're doing, they're traveling to cities to, uh, for, for big legal cases. Uh, they do Burning Man. They do all the U S embassies and they're the embassy events in, uh, in DC, uh, and as I, I started digging into the to the business, I just saw a lot of the parallels to, to Zagster. They operate out of self storage units uh, around the country. They have a lean team of a you know a person and a van and a and a warehouse and some equipment in the cities that they operate in. And most importantly, they're already the largest and only nationwide uh, company that owns their own uh, equipment uh, doing this in the in the space. So uh, I started digging in, and I just got more and more excited every time I. Uh, I talk with anybody about the business. So much to to react to there, Tim. I love it. First of all, a business that can claim Burning Man, embassies, and the Super Bowl 
as <laughs> as customers. I mean, what what like if you if you said to somebody, guess what type of business has all three of these as customers? Good good luck coming up with the answer. That's amazing. <laughs> Let's get also the the obvious out of the way. Uh, aren't isn't aren't printers dead? Isn't printers dying? Isn't everything electronic? And that, as I know from our pre-call, was also your your first, you know, your reflexive uh, approach, your kind of reaction to the business. So address that, please. Yeah, that, that was my main concern. If, if it was any other industry, I probably would have been even more excited, but uh, that was my main concern. And, and this is actually, I, I brought it to the acquisition lab. Uh, I went to the to the biweekly call with, with Walker, uh, where we review uh, the uh, different uh, businesses that people are considering and or have under LOI. And I literally asked the group, I'm like, I'm really excited about this deal, but am I crazy? <laughs> and uh, literally Walker put up a poll in, in Zoom and asked the group if, if I was crazy. And I think it was like 95% said no. <laughs> so hmm. I think that, you know, that gave me the confidence that my, my gut was telling me this was really interesting. Um, you know, I had this reservation around, you know, is this dead? And you know, as I started talking to more people, understanding the the client base, I got comfortable with it because I found that uh, this these are they're servicing customers that I can't actually see uh, going fully digital, uh, and I kind of got comfortable with it that most businesses that could go paperless have gone paperless now. But like we do a lot of filming, uh, film production, so like we do a lot of Netflix series and others, uh, and they print out all of the the uh, scripts and everything on, on site at the Super Bowl, they've got a media kits, all this stuff, like all this stuff is, is, uh, you know, just easier to, to have, uh, you know, printed in front of you on paper. And also 50% of the revenue comes from law firms, uh, and their court cases. And could you imagine like sitting in court with a, you know, lawyer being like, Oh, sorry, my iPad rebooted, <laughs> you know, yeah. when they're trying to, to argue a case, like I it just didn't see that, that changing. And and that's ultimately what gave me the, the, the comfort to move forward. You're now the third interview, maybe fourth of somebody I've, I've had is about a, a printing related business. And, <laughs> and yes, there was a big decline when, when it, digital came in, but like a lot of that decline has already happened. So wherever paper is persisting in whatever context there are, like the ones you just described, like it, it's, if digital were going to eat that, it would have already eaten that. So those 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 use cases uh, are are pretty secure for the for the future. Um. Okay, and so this thing, Tim, about there being no SIM, is that because why is that, and why and and why is that not a red flag? I mean, I I know the answer is basically the more you learned about the business, you the more you liked it, but it just feels kind of like. My gut is like, well, if they if there's some link in the chain here that's really unprofessional, maybe it's just the broker, or maybe it's somebody at the business, but it just doesn't feel if whoever is on their team delivering this business to the market, if they can't get their ducks in a row to put together a sim, there are probably other many other places under the hood where their the ducks are not in a row as well. Your thoughts, your reaction? Yeah, I think it was definitely concerning. Uh, and actually, I, I called the broker probably two or three times before I ultimately got a call back. And of course, it was like, you know, five o'clock on a Thursday while I was driving. Uh, but, you know, ultimately got some of the information. For, from what I understand, they were in the process of putting this in together. I think they put mm. it out uh, on BizBuySell sort of prematurely just to test out the market, or maybe they thought it was going to take a really long time to sell. So they just wanted to get it out there and and start building leads. But you know, my, my MO and and what I recommend to others that are that are searching is that 
you know, especially if you're doing this full time, I, I, I was aggressive. If I found something I liked, I probably contacted the broker within hours of that listing coming onto the, to the market. Um, I generally did that over email. And if I didn't get a response within 24 hours, I was calling them and, you know, I was very quick mm. to, to get the SIM and review it and see if this was something interesting or, or not. And I, I took the same approach here. I, I don't remember exactly how long it was on biz by sell before I, I called him, but I'm, I'm guessing that it was uh, pretty quick based on, uh, you know, his, his delayed response. I, I think maybe even he was over <laughs> overwhelmed by, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the interest in it. Mm-hmm. Well, Tim, you, you, uh, you have some sales, uh, background there, uh, you're bringing to bear. <laughs> For also, sure. by the way, that is why when I reached out to said broker, he said, sorry, already under LOI, because somebody was was out there acting really quickly <laughs> on this on this listing. <laughs> um, actually, but I want to get more uh, bullet points on the business, Tim, but but um, question before we get too far away from it on this technique that you had to kind of blanket the broker sphere the the national broker sphere reaching out to effectively every broker in the country um to do this nationwide search uh you you bought your business relatively quickly so i guess the answer is yes it did work but did you um do you recommend that to others in, in retrospect is there anything you would tweak about that approach talk to me about the results that the, the fruit that bore did not <laughs> Yeah, I was fully prepared for a two-year long search. So, you know, I'd prepared my wife for that. I prepared myself for that. I prepared financially for that. I, w- I was fully prepared to, you know, be the on the the sort of worst case scenario of, of people's search, which is, you know, going out 24 plus months. So I was fully prepared for that. But, you know, I, something I learned early at Zagster was I, I probably spent a couple of years doing sales wrong. And Ooh. doing sales wrong is you know, occasionally reaching out to people, not having a coordinated uh, campaign, not having a full list of people that you want to target, not really thinking through it and just sort of ad hoc doing that. And until, uh, you know, I went through Techstars and then ultimately ended up working with some really great um, sales professionals that that helped me refine that. I I learned how to essentially run a sales process. And that's what you're doing in a, in a search. You're selling yourself and you're selling your capability to, to close on this deal. And so it's important to, to act that way. And so, you know, I spent a, a lot of time up front sort of preparing my list, preparing my materials. And then, you know, once I had all that together, I, I blanketed the market really quickly. And that's how I was able to get, um, you know, really get my deal flow up and running with, within 30 days of, of starting my search. Well, we don't have a time to go through everything you learned about sales and a sales process and tech stars. But what I'm hearing is essentially, like you said, it was kind of like, ad hoc kind of, you know, not very structured. And later it became like the, the refinement was becoming very structured, having all your materials going out aggressively to talking to everybody as quickly as you can. And then I assume your follow-up is just extremely tight. The moment you see something or you get a, you know, a, a response back, you can pounce all over it. You've got materials at the ready. Uh, and it's just kind of, it's very systematic and, uh, aggressive and by aggressive, I don't necessarily mean like, you know, aggressive sales, but like fast follow-up moving quickly, goal oriented, not kind of like, you know, getting around to it. Yeah, for sure. That, that's exactly how I'd recommend people doing the, their process. And, you know, it's also a really great skill set to learn because, you know, ultimately uh, whatever business you buy, even if you have a sales team as the, the leader of a small organization, like you've really got to 
uh, drive the the sales and the sales process in the organization. So I think it's a skill set that you know, yes, even if you're only buying one business, might seem silly to learn, but I think it, it's it's transferable to to the business that you're buying. And I'm implementing a lot of the same strategies with the with the team now to uh, to grow the business because historically. Uh, they didn't do any real outreach. Uh, they've done all their businesses come through word of mouth and inbound. Uh, and now there's a real opportunity to develop a great strategy and, and go out and, and grow this business using those same techniques. Cool. Well, we're, we're going to circle back to that. The Okay. Back to the business, uh, short-term copier. And the name of the business is short-term copier? The name of the business is short-term copier. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give us a sense of size, both, um, I think, Maybe you told us the cities, the number of cities, but in terms of its locations and then also any financial metrics. Yeah, so they have the the capability to operate in in every major metropolitan market in the U.S. and and that was something that really got me excited, given my uh, my background operating companies around the uh, operating a company that has uh, staff around the country. Uh, they were doing in 2022 about four million dollars uh, in revenue and just under a million dollars in in SDE or adjusted EBITDA. Um, that being said, the prior two years before that, uh, COVID really uh, took a took a hit on this business. Uh, their revenue in 2020 uh, and 2021 was about half of what they were doing in 2019 and ultimately did in 2022. Uh, and that's because half of their revenue came from events and conferences. Uh, the other half came from legal, which actually didn't really see any sort of uh, uh, decline during that that time. So, you know, what, what COVID was really difficult for the business, but what it did to the business when it got through it is that they had a lot of smaller regional, local, one city competitors that were renting equipment prior to to COVID. Uh, but most of those ended up getting killed off. So 2022 was uh, their best year from a from a revenue and and profitability standpoint. Uh, and I we're on track to 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 beat 2022 and in, in 2023. Uh, even though I only purchased the the company halfway through through the year. So uh, really really excited about the the growth opportunity here and and you know the the pricing power and operational efficiencies we have as being the the largest in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> that's amazing, Tim. And, and, a, and a great size of, for a business to, to buy, even, even if you didn't have aggressive plans to, to grow it, which you do, but it, it's, a great, it's a great size business to buy, almost a million in SDE uh, in a normal non-COVID year uh, is you know, kind of the, the sweet spot that we all, that we all would, would love to find. Uh, and on Biz Buy Sell. The, and they listed the, it on Biz Buy Sell as less than that. They listed it, um, I think, October of 2022. Uh, and they were actually pretty conservative on their their estimate for what they thought 2022 was going to do for the year. And they actually underlisted it at like 700 or, or something along those lines. But the company ended up doing uh, over a million dollars in, um, in EBITDA by the end of the year. Wow. Uh, Tim, I have a screenshot of the old uh, biz buy sell listing. Um, nice, <laughs> because as probably I said, still up there. I don't think they ever took it down. <laughs> you're kidding. Wow. Maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe I, I took the screenshot even after um, you acquired it. Um, but yes, the EBITDA was listed, listed at 700 cash flow at 830. Um, so the fact that these local competitors who were smaller didn't have the footprint, they were maybe just in a single city, these single or double city competitors didn't survive COVID. Does that mean that this business model only works at the scale uh, of being in multiple markets like you are? 
I think in normal times you could have a local competitor and, and most of them weren't exclusively renting it on a short-term basis. Most of them did long-term leasing of um, copiers and printers. So, you know, if you have an office space and you, you need a copier or printer, most people end up uh, leasing it for a three or five year basis. And so a majority of the, the local competitors did that. And then they, with some of their excess inventory, would occasionally do the short-term rentals. But it's actually a completely different business model. The long-term leasing, they may not even touch the equipment. They, you know, go out, their sales organizations, they, they find companies that, that need this. And then they have a, a relationship with Sharp or one of the other uh, copier providers. And then they put it on site and it sits there for, you know, three to five years. And they do a little bit of service uh, the, with with short-term rentals, it's a completely different business that these machines aren't meant to be moved around. Uh, they're meant to be put in a place for three to five years and, and sit there. So, you know, it takes special handling to, to do that. And there's actually mm. companies that exclusively deal with shipping long distance uh, copiers because it's so different than, you know, being able to put it up on the back of a, a UPS truck or, or a freight truck. So um, it requires special handling. And so a majority of the, the local uh, uh, people doing this just did it as a, as a side hustle, essentially, if they had some extra equipment, but, but really weren't doing it well. And when COVID hit and everybody had to streamline, a lot of them just cut that business uh, or went out of business because so many of the you know, companies they were leasing to no longer had people coming in the office anymore. So you know, there was a lot of things that, that disrupted there, but, but ultimately it made this company stronger. So I, I think you can have smaller companies on a, on a regional or, or citywide level. But, you know, I think what we get at with, with this scale is we, you know, can get, uh, uh used equipment at a, at a much better price. Uh, and, you know, customers prefer us because if you're a production company doing, um, you know, production work all around the country, you want to deal with one vendor instead of having to, you know, deal with 15 different vendors in 15 different cities. And so we get a lot of, uh, uh, you know, repeat business from, uh, companies that just deal uh, in in multiple cities. Yeah, super cool. On this point about repeat business and in contrasting it with the the model you said of the of these quote competitors who weren't quite competitors because their model was different. But it does sound like the, the benefit of those models was that they were more contractual. The revenue was more contractual. Whereas in your case. I mean, it's in the name, short-term copier. <laughs> um, to what extent do you have contracts or any sort of pure recurring revenue as opposed to repeat or reoccurring revenue? Most of this business is, is job revenue, but it is, uh, you know, their top 20, our, our top 20 customers represent like 50% of the, the business. So it's a lot of repeat um, uh, with customers, but not on a recurring basis. That being said, the, the company did do some month-to-month -month rentals uh, where they were recurring. And so this would be like a construction trailer or um, you know, a, a temporary office that might only be there for 12 months that need to have a, a copier and a, and a printer. Uh, and so rather than going to a leasing company that's going to charge require them to sign at least a three-year lease agreement, uh, they work with, the, with our company to... to to essentially lease it on a month-to-month -month basis at a, at a higher price point to compensate. Uh, so I, that's actually a, a growth area in the in the business, and you know I think would for me give a, a lot more comfort having uh, some recurring revenue versus being solely job based. Mm -hmm. The transaction itself. So the business was selling for, according to this screenshot of the biz buy sell listing I have here, about three three million dollars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bought so it for that, for two point mm -hmm. seven million. 
2.7. Okay. So if your if your cash flow is at roughly a million, granted that was only in the most recent year, that wasn't the last yeah. three years, but um, that's a sounds like a really good multiple to me. Less than three. Yeah, I, I I was prepared to pay three to four x on on the business I was looking for. Not not particularly this one. I, I think this one, um, you know, uh, it, it required a certain type of buyer uh, that you know happened to have my background uh, of operating a company around the country in the in the sort of rental space. Uh, and so you know, and, and just given that it was in the copier and printer space, I, I think saw a lower lower multiple. So um, you know, ultimately, I I think I got a great deal on the company. And I think the, the seller is happy. So I think it's one of those uh, uh, deals where it was a win-win. Yeah. Well, and y- yeah, you make a good point that the, the business buyer fit here is is through the roof. I mean, you yeah. really, you really tailor-made to, to, to run and grow this thing, Tim. But, but so that's interesting. Do you think that it actually was an unappealing business to most who would have stumbled across it? I mean, I was interested in it and I, I don't have, I don't have 13 years at Zagster. Seemed, seemed like a pretty appealing business to me. Yeah, I don't think it's unaf- unappealing, but I, I think, you know, a lot of like any founder, including myself, when I founded my VC back company, you want your company to to, you know, live on your legacy to live on. And you want it in the hands of somebody that you believe is a perfect fit to take it to the next level. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. sellers want to get out, they want to retire and, you know, they're going to sell regardless. But, you know, when I think most sellers and having been in those shoes, want the company to end up somewhere where you know, their legacy is going to move on and, and grow. And I, I think that, you know, I felt it was a perfect fit and the sellers thought it was a perfect fit. And, you know, I think even if I, there was, uh, this is just my guess, but even if there was offers slightly higher than mine, I, I think the seller would have gone with me. And the seller motivation was retirement. Yeah. He wanted to retire before COVID or around COVID time. Uh, and obviously with the business, uh, taking such a big hit, he needed to show the rebound uh, before he he sold the business, but he was at retirement age. Uh, he'd been in the copier space for twenty five plus years, maybe even longer, uh, and you know was just just ready to to move on. So, uh, you know, he was he was amazing at the transition. Uh, he helped in the first thirty days, just ran the business as he did before because he did a lot of the uh, sort of order taking and, and inbound sales work, and so. You know, as I was learning the business and just getting through the the transition period, he did a phenomenal job uh, uh, just keeping the business running with with no issues. So, you know, you hear some horror stories of of sellers who like don't show up the day after the transaction, or mm-hmm. you know, aren't aren't helpful. And and you know, in this case, I I have to commend the uh, the the seller. He did a phenomenal job of of transitioning and and get it up uh, and running for me to to take on. Mm-hmm. And to, I think we've already said it, he's based in Maryland, just, just here, just right outside DC, right? Yep. So it's in, um, uh, yeah, Columbia, Maryland, Laurel, Maryland area. So between the DC and, and Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And as if it's not already, in case it's not already clear, this is not a business that you are going to eventually take uh, to being kind of remote first or remotely run. This was, that was very much already uh, the case for this business happily. Um, and it, when we first talked for the pre-call, you were actually at the Maryland location, but headquarters of this business is, is quite, um, Spartan. I mean, there's not a lot there, right? T- tell us about what headquarters looks like. Yeah, headquarters is a subrented uh, warehouse space in in Maryland, uh, and Maryland is their DC and Baltimore are their largest are our largest market. 
um, around the the U.S. and it's mainly because they historically were uh, were based there, but also the uh, D.C. in in particular provides a, a you know a unique opportunity with all the embassies and events going on and uh, lawyers, the, uh, legal lawyer cases, and and all <laughs> of that. So you know it, it is our largest facility and one of the only facilities where we have multiple people in the in the market. Uh, but there's really no office space area. Um, it was, it's mainly just a, a warehouse with a, with a break room. Uh, mm-hmm. so, you know, we, I had all the staff that were working remotely because most of them, most of the admin staff for, uh, actually all of them were, were based in Maryland. So I had them come in for, for a month, uh, to just meet face to face and spend time together and learn the, the business. But, you know, ultimately, uh, after about six weeks, uh, uh, I, I left. I'm back here in Puerto Rico and been running the business remote ever since. Mm-hmm. And these folks in Maryland, how many are actually in Maryland? Uh, so there's eight people in Maryland. Four of them are delivery drivers or technicians, and uh, four of them are uh, sort of back office uh, uh, staff. And so you, as new owner, you said, I want everybody, all, all the Maryland folks to come in to the Columbia Laurel um, office for a full month. Yeah. Uh, I guess, I guess the drivers and the field crew would be, would check in in the morning and then just go back out. So we're, we're talking mostly about four people being in the office yep. and, um, just, just for people imagining themselves, you know, in, in the authority they do or don't carry on day one, you know, asking everybody to come in, you know, they're used to their, you know, working in their pajamas from home. And then the new owner and boss says, I want everybody in here you know, five days a week for the next four weeks, you know, we, we keep seeing headlines about all of the tension between employers wanting employees to come back to the office. And of course, employees not wanting to, you weren't making, you weren't making a secular change. This was just going to be temporary, but still it was an ask. Um, anything to share there about your management style or is it just, you just mandated it and, and, and it happened. I believe in being really honest with uh, with employees, and I think you know if you look back at at, at Zagster, I uh, I try not to be top down in in my management style. Uh, obviously, I, I asked everybody to come in here and I explained why it was important, and you know I think the fact that I didn't live in Maryland and I you know live in Puerto Rico, and my intent was to continue operating the company remotely made them feel comfortable with it because they knew it wasn't going to be, you need to come in for, uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, it was, uh, it was sort of time box, but you know, some, some people had like a, uh, literally an hour and a half commute each way, uh, to come in. So I, I felt bad asking for it, but I think everybody by the end of the month agreed that, that it made a lot of sense. It created that camaraderie. You know, we were able to go out and have drinks after work and, you know, spend a little bit of time to get, getting to know each other and being able to bounce ideas quickly off of each other before that, uh, you know, we went back to our, our remote first, uh, uh, cycle, but I actually think the company works better, uh, remotely, uh, uh, in, in this case, I think, you know, people were, were used to being in their own house and having to call. And, uh, when we were in the office, there was almost too much collaboration going back and forth mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, harder to find some quality time to, to, to work. So, you know, I think the, the, it just goes to show how much, you know, culture matters and the culture was working remote and that's, that's how it operated best. Mm -hmm. And do you, given that it is basically a fully remote business already, including even kind of at the management level, do you envision going to Maryland every X number of months or is that not even really necessary? 
yeah, I would, I would have spent time with, with people face to face. And, you know, I, I knew moving to Puerto Rico that, you know, and not having office space, that the advantage to that is that I can use the budget that you would spend on an office space to spend more time being out in the field. And this is exactly what I did at Zagstar. I, I learned more by going out uh, and spending time with our drivers and our mechanics uh, in the field about, you know, what customers were liking, what they didn't like uh, than I did sitting sitting in an office. And so, you know, I'm glad we don't have an office in Maryland because the the old owner there there's some employees he's never met face to face, and you know I want to I want to make sure that I'm I'm spending that time in the in the field with the the people that who are actually delivering the value to our customers. Excellent. Well, uh, so let's talk a little bit more about um, managing an, a national operation. The kind of probably the first fear of somebody who says to themselves this is not possible or not possible yet I'm not, I don't have the managerial experience level or whatever would be would be the point of failure at each of these remote locations so uh, I'm not sure you said it but in many of your cities you basically have a single human on the ground right like a guy a truck and a storage unit is that right that's generally the model yeah and so what does it look like when you have a problem with one of the people or, or, you know, or they quit? Um, are you just out of commission in that city? I mean, that, that's not a lot of um, that's not a lot of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Capacity or a lot of room uh, for error there. Yeah, there are some, some of the largest markets like in, a, in Orlando or Miami. Um, we do have multiple two people in, in that market. So there is some some redundancy there. But you know, I think what, what got me comfortable with this and got me excited is that in addition to the markets where we have our own staff and we have our own equipment and we have our own vehicles, there's actually a lot of markets that uh, can't support that, but we still operate in through partners. So like I'll give Boston as a great example. Boston, where I lived, uh, you know, there's probably three or four months of really prime uh, sort of event time in the summer. And then the rest of the year, uh, you know, events aren't, aren't as, as prevalent there. And so it's really not a market that can support uh, full-time uh, people on, a, on an annual basis. So uh, we have a really great partner there who is a uh, copier dealer on a long-term basis, never wanted to get into short-term rentals or deal with that, uh, who stores our equipment. Uh, and then when we have jobs in uh, Boston, uh, we'll uh, deliver the equipment and, and drop it off. So we already have this capability to uh, essentially outsource and, and partner with with people to do delivery and, and sort of tech service and, and markets. So uh, and we even in markets where we have our own staff, if we've got five deliveries on the, the same day, we'll end up pulling on one of our, our partners there to, to give us extra capacity. So. You know, I, I, I felt comfortable with with getting my head around this and that, you know, even if somebody were to quit in a uh, in, in one of our major cities that we typically have a partner there that helps us out on busy times that we could we could use to at least keep the, the lights on until we, we found somebody more permanent. OK, great. Uh, and, and what about uh, the quality of service and, and how do you ensure that uh, being so remote and having so little FaceTime or, or um, you know, being able to look over the shoulder of, of somebody in your LA market. Yeah, again, this is where I can pull on my, my Zagster experience because we had the same thing. We had bikes in 35 states around the US that needed to be maintained. And, you know, we weren't going to fly somebody out every time something, the flat tire happened in a market. So uh, <laughs> what we did at, at Zagster was we developed um, uh, a mobile app for the, the mechanics uh, that we use to, to dispatch mechanics um, and have them take pictures of the work that they're doing, uh, uses GPS on the phone to make sure they're on site, 
Uh, and so we use that as a, as a quality of service um, uh, metric. And then we'd also, if, if, you know, there was an issue with the bike and then, uh, uh, you know, it was supposed to be fixed and three days later, somebody reports the same issue with the bike or another issue, you know, we can use that data to be able to determine that we needed to, to make a change in that market or, or coach in that market. So, uh, right now that the company has been operating with, with basically no technology in that realm, uh, and has been doing it through, you know, text messages and emails with, with PDFs to their, to their drivers. And one of the first things that I'm working on implementing now is a, uh, basically an ERP software that, um, is built for the event management space. Uh, that's going to allow us to have a lot of that same functionality that we, we built with, uh, with Zagster for our mechanics, uh, so that we can, you know, have some more visibility into what's going on in the, in the, in the market. So again, this is where, you know, just me being comfortable with, with operating with, with people very similar in that role, uh, makes it work. And I, I think, you know, to me, my management style is I'm going to, I'm going to trust you and I'm going to, you know, provide, uh, guidance for you. And if, you know, you meet that, then we're all going to celebrate and we're going to treat you really well. And if, if not, then, you know, we'll, we'll have to make a, a change or, you know, do coaching or whatever it is to, to make sure that we can, we can achieve that. Great, Tim. Now, some of the other kind of attributes of the buyer business fit here was not, was not simply your deep expertise in running a, a, a you know, a 35 city operation, but in your marketing and sales, um, acumen, we've already touched on the sales a little bit. But you saw a lot of uh, opportunity in this business to ramp up marketing and sales. You've already touched on some of it, but let's dive in. What, what else did you see there? Yeah, what, what I saw and got me really excited about this is that the company was doing the metrics that I, that I walked you through uh, without really doing any outbound sales in the last maybe even decade. Um, you know, they had built a name for themselves in the space uh, as being a reliable service partner that could operate around the U.S., uh, and so, you know, a lot of their business is, is repeat business. Uh, also, uh, I, their, the website is a priority for, for me to change and is a project that I'm working on now, but, uh, even given the, their current website, if you search for short-term copy or rental and put any city in the U S it's going to be, you know, number one, two or, or three on, on Google, they, they just, we own this niche. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. and so that, that, that got me really excited because without really doing any of the efforts that I know I can bring, uh, to the company, um, the, the company's doing really well. And so I, I have, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll mark a line in the sand now, but I, I believe within three years I could easily double this business. Uh, and so, uh, that, you know, I'm working on putting the, the strategy in place now to, um, uh, to lay the groundwork for that to happen. Uh, perfect segue to my next question. So, so how you're, you're, you're telling us all of the kind of, um, untapped assets, assets of this business, but what exactly does your, your three-year playbook look like to double the business? Yeah, I think we, we work with a lot of the largest, uh, law firms in the, in the country, but there's actually a lot of, uh, uh, customers that work with, uh, essentially middlemen. Ultimately they end up getting our, our equipment, but they working with, uh, with middlemen. Uh, who are providing, you know, lo logistics uh, for litigation. Uh, and so, you know, I think w sort of step one is uh, being able to work, um, uh, be able to have the web presence. So when somebody's looking for us, that they understand that, you know, booking direct, like booking direct with Marriott or one of the hotel chains is going to give you, you know, sort of extra perks and give you the best price. So 
yeah, I think that that's one area. I, I think there is a, a lot of opportunity for, um, uh, for, for growth in a couple of the sectors that we're in. I think construction is a, is a big one for, for us. Uh, uh, I think, you know, it's an area we've done a little bit in, but you know, there's construction trailers, there's, uh, we have a contract with FEMA, uh, you know, we're at all the, uh, sort of sites when you need to set up temporary offices. And so I, I think there's growth there. And I think there's, there's, don't want to tip my hand publicly yet, but there's some uh, additional equipment that I think we could add to um, our uh, fleet uh, that would complement what we're, we're doing today. So I think all of those combined make me feel very comfortable uh, saying that I could double this business. And that's what a 33% year over year growth. And yeah, when you're in the venture community, you're, if you did that, on a yearly basis, you you probably wouldn't raise your next round of financing. You, you know, you'd have to be in the 100, 200, 300 percent year of year growth. So, you know, I'm taking a lot of those same playbooks and pressure and and mindset uh, to to this business to to grow it. Mm-hmm. Well, I I want to uh, we're going to return to just this transition from zero to one to one to ten businesses. Uh, the but just to repeat something you said or, or clarify. So right now it's short term copier, short-term copier and printers. I think you said that actually pure printing as opposed to copying is, is really where, where the business is. Um, but there's an opportunity to provide other equipment as well in in these in these contexts that you're serving or could grow into serving construction, legal war rooms, movie sets. Um, these these co- these contexts need other things beyond just paper. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, when you take a step back, our our customer is somebody who needs a temporary office, and that office could mm. be at an event or a conference space. It could be a construction trailer, it could be a movie set, but essentially, it's a um, it's a temporary office. And so, you know, you, there's lots of other things other than printers that you need in a temporary office. And you know, I think there's there's some other niches that I I think we could provide there. Like we we actually do a, a big business in shredding. Uh, after all these legal cases and you've got all these confidential documents and in court, uh, you know, where do they all have to go? They, they ultimately need to be shredded. So we do a lot of uh, work with, with shredding. Um, we just kind of naturally got in there because our customers were, were asking for it. So we, we actually have started to, you know, really uh, sort of promote some of that stuff. Uh, we're going to start promoting some of that stuff that we had been doing anyway, um, but, you know, haven't really been put front and center to, to other customers to, to know that we do it. Yeah. I love that, Tim. That's that's such a um, punchy and bigger vision uh, recharacterization of the business from short-term copier to basically temporary office. That is uh, a better encapsulation and a much a much a much bigger vision. Really nice. The so the goal is doubling in five years. You you three years. Sorry, three years. Yeah, sorry, yeah, <laughs> three years. Right. <laughs> Doubling in three years. Uh, you're calling your shot here. And what about what after that? So one of the big differences in, in VC land versus this space, SMB acquisition land, is a lot of people buy a small business with the idea uh, that it's a, a, a permanent acquisition or an indefinite acquisition. Is that how you're thinking about it? Or are you thinking more uh, like a VC would and, and there's probably an exit at some point? I, I think uh, I'm not to be honest the the answer is i'm not exactly sure i i think that this is something i'll probably end up holding for for a long time i, I ended up bringing on an operations manager uh who had worked with me uh, at zagster who worked for the acquiring company for three years and then 
uh, when I, when I signed the LOI, I approached him and, uh, uh, got him to, to commit to, to coming on board. So I, I have somebody who can really run the, the day-to-day operations of, of this business while I focus on the, the sales and marketing and sort of the growth side that I, that I know I can do really well. Uh, you know, ultimately, you know, as, as we get the systems and processes in place for, uh, the new sales, uh, push. You know, that's something that I could I could transition off my plate and look at other uh, acquisitions. Uh, I've also started uh, investing through the SMB fund uh, into other acquisition entrepreneurs who are looking to, to buy businesses uh, using SBA loans, but uh, need help on that down payment to uh, to accomplish the, uh, the the acquisition. So we've talked about the VC stuff a lot. You you know you, what you just said that or what we just said that in. Um that there's often kind of an exit baked into the expectation uh, in a, in a VC-funded startup. Uh, VC-funded startup taught you uh, just about kind of thinking bigger, or it was just kind of expected to think bigger, higher growth, moving more quickly. Um, on the other hand, we know all, all the drawbacks as well. Uh, starting from absolute scratch is is very difficult. For three years, you were kind of Living on ramen, sort of, sort of thing. It took a long time to get any traction at all. Um, anything about the contrast between these two, these two entrepreneurial paths that we haven't touched on? Yeah, I, I think actually when I when I became public uh, on LinkedIn and Twitter and some of the other social media places about my transition to, to ETA uh, from the the VC side, I ended up getting uh, a ton of people reaching out to me. And I probably take at least to one to two calls per week uh, with somebody who is either a founder or an early um, employee at a venture capital backed startup who are now thinking smaller uh, and thinking about getting uh, into ETA. And I, I think what we've seen is, uh, in my opinion, a, a big shift in uh, in the VC land. When I started in 2007, the, the VC landscape was was actually pretty small. A place like Boston might have, you know, had 10 VC firms and now there's literally hundreds of them. And the goalposts have changed significantly where if you can't show a viable path to a VC that you could be a, a, a unicorn or a decacorn uh, in the next, you know, three to four years, then you're not able to raise venture capital anymore. Uh, and so I think that the, the goalposts have moved so far out and the likelihood of success for a founder of a startup uh, is so much less than it that it was before financial success uh, that I think a lot of people are, are rethinking that as a path. I'm so glad that I went through it. And I'm so glad I did it at the time in my life, you know, coming out of college and had really nothing to, to lose to do it. And I learned a, a ton. But, you know, having spent time in, in ETA, I, I'm going to make more uh, at short-term copier in the first 12 months of, of operating this, this business than I did probably in three years, the last three years of, uh, uh, of operating Zagster. I mean, at the end of the day, you're, when you raise that much money, 40 million in venture capital, you're an employee of the company, you have no control over your, your salary. And, you know, the, the investors want to keep your salary as low as possible and try to put the carrot of equity uh, being worth something someday in, in front of you. So, you know, I think a lot of people are starting to to see that. And, uh, you know, I think the skill set that you can bring with all the tech that uh, we use at, uh, at Zagster is, you know, such a perfect fit for these SMBs that are even further behind than, uh, than, than, than on the rest of the, the country on implementing technology. Yeah. Well, what about, Tim, the, the other kind of 
giant contrast between these two worlds, which is the glory of the of the business. We here in SMB land, we affectionately call these boring businesses, um, <laughs> but they they are pretty utilitarian. You're you're not uh, bringing something brand new into the world um, like like you were with Zagster. Um, and, and that is one of the draws for VC style entrepreneurs and, and tech in general. Uh, and I think, as I recall from our pre-call, you too had said that 10 years ago, you probably would have, you know, raised your eyebrow at a, at a buddy buying a short-term copier business. And, and now here you are. So, so address, address that kind of qualitative difference. Yeah. I wonder if it's, uh, you know, might be age or just mentality, but you know, yeah, coming out of college, like, you know, I, I wouldn't have changed what I did, but you know, if I could have gone back and done a different company, I probably would have bought a boring business knowing, knowing what I know now. Um, but you know, coming out of college and you, you know, reading TechCrunch and you're sort of seeing all this world of like, you know, everything growing so quickly and, you know, people becoming the next Mark Zuckerberg, you know, that, that, that happens to like 0.001% of people who go down that path. And, you know, I think you get, you sort of get sucked into it and it's, uh, I was certainly sucked into it. And, you know, I, I, I honestly believed that we were going to be a unicorn. <laughs> yeah, I, mm -hmm. I believe we, we got further than most companies do uh, on the VC path. But, you know, I, I fully believed I was going to was going to be a, a unicorn. I sort of drank the, the Kool-Aid and, you know, it came, I wouldn't say crashing down, but certainly didn't. Uh, we never became a unicorn, uh, although others in our, our space did. But their their market cap is uh lower than what our last valuation was at, mm -hmm. uh, at Zagster before we sold. So, uh, you know, I, I think that boring is the, is the new sexy, in my opinion. I, I think, you know, <laughs> the, it's the new opportunity. And I think that, you know, to me, the ETA space today feels like the venture capital space in 2017, 2018, 2019, sorry, 2007, 2008, 2009, sort of the early days, uh, and, you know, a lot of collaboration and, you know, sort of realistic expectations. And I think the VC land became too sexy and, you know, most VCs aren't going to live up to uh, uh, what they promised their, their LPs on, on returns because you just can't find that many unicorns. So uh, I think we're right. My prediction is we're going to see a ton of people, uh, both investors and uh, operators uh, move from the VC space into the ETA sort of PE space. Well, we're already... Uh, hearing a lot about how there's a lot of searchers. Search has grown a ton. It's hard to find a deal. It's competitive to find a good deal. Uh, so that might only get uh, more acute here in, in the next few years if your prediction comes to pass. Um, Tim, anything that we didn't get to that you want to uh, say? Love to do a little shout out for the SMB fund if you're open to chatting about that. Go for it. Yeah, let's see. So yeah, you mentioned that you're you're looking to invest uh, other, in other searchers deals. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I, as I was going through the acquisition lab and, and talking with other uh, people, uh, searchers who were starting their search, I, I found a lot of really great operators, uh, searchers who were thinking, in my opinion, too small, uh, and solely thinking about what they could afford for a business. And, you know, let's, let's say, uh, that you were looking at the top end of the SBA range and you were looking at a, at a company in the five or, or $6 million enterprise value, the amount of, uh, down payment you'd need if you were doing the 90% SBA loan, uh, is 500 or $600,000. Uh, 
And for me, coming from the venture capital space where I've raised $40 million and even my first round at Zagster before I raised VC dollars uh, was, was close to a half million dollars. Uh, you know, the, the thought of raising that kind of money uh, didn't phase me at all, but totally understand if you don't come from that world, that it can be very daunting to, to start that process. So, uh, what I, what I put together is we're calling the SMB fund. Uh, it's essentially mimics a, uh, syndicate angel group that invests in the VC world, uh, but in ETA. And we take minority investments uh, into uh, uh, companies that are being acquired by searchers using SBA loans, uh, and we can put up to 100% of the, the down payment. So in my opinion, I think that if, if you're searching for a business and going down the SBA route, uh, you should find the best business uh, possible. And uh, if you you know, don't have the, the capital to uh, put down that whole down payment, uh, there are options out there uh, to, to be able to uh, support that acquisition. And Tim, how do you uh, address if you're if you're prepared to put in a hundred percent of the down payment uh, or the, the equity injection on behalf of a searcher? Um, how do you address in your own mind the risk related to wanting them to have some skin in the game? Most people don't have half a million liquid that they can they where they could you know inject into their own deal. Um, but if they have you know, but it, it's good that they have some money if for no other reason than they're putting something at risk. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. We we generally have not we have not done any deal where we put 100 percent in. And I think that would be a case by case basis for a searcher with a perfect fit who doesn't have a, you know, the balance sheet to, to really put anything meaningful into the to the company. Uh, but, you know, I, I, we, we want the searcher to have some skin in the game. They're obviously still taking the, the personal guarantee. Uh, right. through through the SBA. So obviously they they have some skin in the game, but you know, if, if you're sitting on capital, then we certainly want you to to put something in meaningful, just like a VC would. Uh, you know, I, I came out of undergrad with, you know, negative money, a negative net worth. Um, and so investors didn't expect me to put money in. But uh, you know, if I had been sitting on a half million dollars and I wasn't putting any money into uh into into each of the rounds, then I think that would raise a red flag. And I think it would do the same thing here. And Tim, this is, you had said that what you witnessed, part, part of your thinking around SMB fund is something you witnessed as a dynamic in the acquisition lab that, that your comrades were maybe thinking not big enough. So your point here is to also enable people to buy a bigger business Elaborate on that. Why? How are they thinking too small? Why should they buy bigger? Elaborate, please. Yeah, and I, actually, this is where your your podcast helped me in my own journey, even before going into the acquisition lab. When when I started my thought process around ETA, I thought, let me just start small, <laughs> uh, and you know, let me. I, I don't know exactly what the numbers were, but maybe buy you know a three hundred thousand dollar EBITDA business and just sort of see if I like this whole acquisition thing. And after listening right. to a lot of your podcasts and talking to a lot of other people, I, I realized that it it's actually riskier to buy a smaller business. And so, yeah, you're taking on a bigger, uh, you know, personal guarantee and a bigger loan. But the reality is, is that you know, if no matter which size business you buy the SBA, pro if it fails, you're going to go bankrupt. It doesn't matter if it's two hundred thousand dollar even a business. You know, you bought for a million bucks, you probably don't have a million dollars in the in the bank, so you're probably going to go bankrupt. And so, you know, that to me was, well, I should buy the biggest company I could find uh, because the larger the company, the more customers that they're going to have, the more employees that they're going to have, and the more likely it is going to be successful. And so, you know, when I saw people in my own cohort 
uh, you know, only buying something small, but wanted to buy something bigger or found a really good company, uh, I was just like, well, why don't you just raise a little bit of money? <laughs> and, you know, maybe it was me being naive coming from the VC side. It's, it's you know, becomes a little second nature to me because that's essentially what my job was as CEO is to, is to fundraise. Um, and so, you know, put together the SMB fund because at the same time, I was hearing from my uh, old investors that were backing me and people in my network uh, when I announced that I was going into ETA, they're like, well, uh, you know, I would put money into your deal. Like, are there other deals like this or how, how do I get involved with these searchers? And so the light bulb hit that, you know, you've got this two-sided marketplace of searchers and investors. They all exist in the world, but there really hasn't been a great uh, way to, to, to combine them outside of, you know, search funder or just hosting it and taking a whole bunch of meetings. So uh, the SMB fund, we can, uh, it, you know, it's individual investors putting money into the, to the deal uh, through a, a, an SPV that we set up, uh, but it allows a searcher to come to one place uh, and get the the full down payment rather than having to take, you know, a hundred meetings with, uh, uh, with some dentists and doctors coming off of search funder and, and collecting $10,000 checks here or there. And how many deals have you invested in to date, Tim? Uh, so we've, we've done two deals to date, uh, and we have a pipeline of over 250 searchers that, uh, are at various stages of their, uh, their search process. So, you know, given that the average, uh, search takes, uh, close to a year, uh, I think by the end of this year, we're going to see a, a significant increase in, uh, uh, in, in deals coming in. But my goal is to, to do, uh, one to, to two deals a month, um, uh, by the end of the year. Well, something you just said there, Tim, about how, you know, coming from the VC world, the idea of raising money is just kind of part of it, you know, really not something very daunting to you. And really anybody who has raised money, it's just one of those things that you learn how to do and you develop contacts with investors. Um, but it's something I've spent some time on in the last few months to kind of try to illuminate that. Because if you never have raised money, it is indeed very daunting. And, and most people kind of quit before they even attempt it. They just kind of think, well, that's for people who are connected or people who know what they're doing. That's just not for me. They don't, um, they don't really, um, kind of even want to approach it. Um, but, uh, people should be more open-minded about it and, and recognize that if you can learn to do a deal, uh, the deal itself, you can certainly learn to, to raise money. Tim, this has been great. Uh, if people want to reach out, how, what's the best way? What's, how do you prefer people contact you? Uh, email is probably the best, uh, Tim at SMB.fund or Tim at committed.ventures. A lot of fun, Tim Erickson. Thank you for coming on. Uh, I love the contrast between your, your very long, uh, zero to one experience and you've hit the ground running hard here in, in SMB acquisition land. What a, what a cool story. So, um, Look forward to having you on three years to the date uh, to see if you uh, if you if you got that if you if you doubled it like you called like you said you would. <laughs> I'll probably have you on sooner, Tim. Sounds good. I love I love a good goal. Great. Thank you, sir. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Will. Well.